Hey there, everybody. So this is another short episode that we're doing. We'll be back next week, uh, both Sean and myself, getting back to our usual episodes. One of the episodes I released, it's sort of a bonus short. It's just kind of a episode where I explain more about what the walled garden is and why people might be interested in it. And also the idea of a Patreon that I'm starting. So I don't want to take up too much time of our normal episodes uh, advertising anything. But if you're interested in those topics, take a look at that episode. And today I'm going to be talking about what I call the, the archetype of the psychopath. So it's an interesting thing when I'm reading Jungian books that I think are completely unrelated to the Norse mythology podcast, and then I stumble upon Norse mythology. This episode was inspired by a book called The Emptied Soul on the Nature of the Psychopath. It's by a Swiss analyst named Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig. And Guggenbuehl Craig has some interpretations on Norse mythology, which I think are incomplete. I think he's missing the full picture. But his assessment of what exactly is a psychopath has led me to some thoughts that are really related to this topic we're on this season of Loki the trickster as a necessary force for change and also the potential for great destruction. If you are considering reading The Emptied Soul, I would strongly recommend that you first read his book called From the Wrong Side, A Paradoxical Approach to Psychology. This is the book that really explains Guggenbuehl Craig's approach to Jungian psychology. I felt it was necessary that I had read that first before I could really benefit from his thinking in The Emptied Soul. The Emptied Soul on the Nature of the Psychopath is not what you might expect from a psychology book. The expectation is an exploration of these curious others. Psychopaths. Broken, damaged people who hurt other people. The book does explore these extremes, the archetypal psychopaths. Serial killers, con artists, unrepentant criminals. But more importantly, the Jungian perspective explores the individual's shadow aspect of yourself, which are psychopathic and narcissistic. Because without exploring and understanding these, we're merely projecting onto these other psychopaths what we refuse to see in ourselves. We cannot see who and what they truly are if we cannot see the psychopath within ourselves. Guggenbuehl Craig's claim about the nature of the psychopath is that the archetype of the psychopath is the archetype of the invalid, an injured or disabled person. But specifically, the psychopath is wounded in the inability for their soul to experience love. The immediate response to the poor psychopath who is unable to feel love is, cry me a river. You can't use that excuse to hurt other people. Lock them up and keep them away from us, civilized people. But maybe that response changes when we do see the psychopath within ourselves. Whenever our capacity or ability to love is hindered, the invalid, the psychopath, remains. Carl Jung said that when love retreats, power advances. Through the journey of Odin, we witness his lust for knowledge, lust for wisdom, which is also the lust for power. As Sean identified in the story on Baldur, this is particularly the desire for the power to defy fate. Odin loves his son Baldur. Uh, He does not want to lose him. Yet Odin cannot love fate. He cannot love the present state of the universe. And maybe he also cannot love himself. But what is love anyways? If you recall our early episodes, it was Sigmund Freud who posited that Eros is the driving force of the human psyche, the psychosexual lust that may lead to perpetuation of the species, or it may be diverted into the numerous human expressions of constructing civilization and artistic expressions. The id only wants to feed, fight, and fornicate, and the human ego redirects this inappropriate expression into the development of culture. 
Carl Jung rejected such a crude description of the motivations of the human psyche, but he did acknowledge Eros, or also known as love, as a motivating force. Jung saw Eros as a necessary condition to integrate the parts of the psyche. We have many parts of ourselves, a pantheon of gods in our soul, some of which are accepted and valued, and others which are rejected. When we are loved, either by our parents or some other attachment figure, we can learn what to do with all or most of these parts. The less love is present, the more parts of the self, both strengths and fears, that must be resigned to the personal shadow of the unconscious. Are we allowed to be the warrior? Are we allowed to be Thor? Or is Thor sent off to giant land, only to return as a hangry, violent dinner guest? Are we allowed, or required, to be the perfect, beautiful balder? Is that part of ourselves allowed to die gracefully as we evolve? Or are we like Odin, grasping for power and control, and afraid of not being able to handle loss? The integrated person is permitted to be all of these things, in balance and expressed as needed. The ego can serve as a wise, fair, and just philosopher king to keep everything in balance, hopefully without having to sacrifice our cut-off parts of the self unconsciously, but rather making conscious decisions of what parts are needed in greater or lesser degrees. Krishna Murti is attributed to saying, it is not a sign of health to be well-adjusted in a sick society. What is needed when the entire kingdom is not well? The trickster enters and changes things up. This creative force is another view on Eros. Eros was the Greek god of love. In some versions, he is the child of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, and the god of war, Ares. But in the earliest versions of the mythology, Eros was the pre-existing force that was necessary to give birth to the cosmos itself before any of the other gods. Eros is not just romantic love, it is love for all of humanity, maybe even for all of being. Love does not necessarily mean getting what you want, but it hopefully does connect you to your own humanity and to the humanity of other people. In the early parts of season two, Loki is a lovable scamp. He causes problems, then solves problems, often at some expense and risk to himself. And everyone learns a nice lesson at the end of the day. What seemed like a bad thing is often exactly what was needed. Loki pulls a hurtful prank, and while trying to solve that problem, he gains six of the greatest gifts the gods have ever seen. That necessity is the mother of invention, and Loki is quite literally the mother of an eight-legged horse who allows the gods to travel to all the nine realms. But then what changes? As Sean has suggested, maybe Loki becomes vengeful after his children are taken away. Odin cannot abide three monstrous children growing in giant land, but wants them sent to the far corners of the cosmos, and in one case tortured needlessly. Loki starts with love, but now we see Loki without arrows. As we have foreshadowed, things are going to get bad, but Ragnarok brings with it the promise of rebirth. Even in the worst of end times, there is a reason to love fate. Something new, something that needed to change. Eros is archetypal love. We hopefully get to experience it at times in our lives. The ego struggles to put into words or songs what love is. The best attempts to define Eros are often expressed as morality, religion or philosophy, rules to live by, the Havamal virtues. Whenever we are not inspired by Eros, we fall back on morality. It's sort of a lesser, hopefully good enough substitute sometimes. It's difficult to always stay connected to our love for our fellow man. Rather, morality keeps us in check when Eros fails. For the true psychopath, they can never understand Eros. 
but rather they may play the roles that help them to fit in society. It's a game or an act, but they and we can observe and attempt to express these roles. What is a father supposed to be? What is a teacher supposed to be? What is a leader supposed to be? With love, we know how to do these things intuitively, but without, we rather fall into the roles of what it's supposed to be. I'm reminded of a stereotypical conversation between Christians and atheists. But if you don't believe in God, then how do you know how to do the right thing? After hearing this, an atheist is left to wonder if these Christians would turn into murderers and cannibals if space aliens came down and were able to prove that God does not exist. In their defense, many such Christians are likely just confused how a person who does not believe in God can experience archetypal love, the love of God. But others are likely confused because they are psychopaths, and they only know morality through the teachings of a church. Saturn was the Roman name for Kronos, the power-hungry, abusive father of the primary Greek pantheon. Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia, they're the representations of heaven, the sea, the underworld, the queen, the land, and the home. Kronos claimed power from his father, Uranos, the god of the sky, by castrating him. When the testicles fell into the sea, they became the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Kronos received a prophecy that his children would overthrow him as well, so he ate each of his children as they were born. When it came time for the sixth child, Zeus, to be eaten, their mother, Rhea, who's the mother goddess and the daughter of the earth, she was tired of losing her children, and she disguised the rock as Zeus, so that Zeus could live on hiding and one day slay his father and free his siblings. In many ways, Zeus is like Odin. He's the king of the gods. But in other ways, Odin is more like Kronos. Odin is clearly afraid to allow fate to come to pass and allow the changing of the guard and a rebirth of the pantheon in the universe after Ragnarok. Maybe Tyr, the Sky Father, got off easy only losing a hand. Guggenbuehl Craig says he considers Nordic mythology to be characteristic of psychopathic depression. He acknowledges that the tribes who developed Nordic mythology may have had a different perspective from what has been passed down to us. Um, when I hear Guggenbuehl Craig speak of Nordic mythology, I think he's most accurately meaning that it's Odin that characterizes the, the sadness that is the lot of the psychopath. The Nordic gods must all die, and they expect the final battle, the destruction at the hands of Loki's minions. In Norse mythology, the roots of the world tree are being gnawed away. The end is a foregone c conclusion. There is no hope. By psychopathic depression, Guggenbuehl Craig means the nihilism and fear that leads to hopelessness. That fear is incompatible with love. And psychopaths fear love itself because they do not understand it. They cannot understand the motivations of people who are motivated by love, and they're always left suspicious. Guggenbuehl Craig says the rebirth to follow the twilight of the gods does give some hope and a meaning to Nordic mythology. While I do disagree with Guggenbuehl Craig's characterization of all of Norse mythology canon as a whole, there are certain myths and aspects that really fit into the idea of psychopathic depression, particularly of Odin. It's interesting that Odin features in many myths as hopeless and desperate to change fate, while in other instances he inspires humans, warriors, and berserkers with Valhalla and eternal glory in combat. The Vikings obviously lived in difficult times, but I don't believe they were nihilistic or found life meaningless. Rather, they were able to find meaning, even in a society which by our standards might seem sociopathic. 
Uh, the Viking warriors seem to find divine inspiration, a code of morality, and perhaps even love in their dedication to the warrior archetype. They do not seem to be particularly well-balanced people, but there's a sense of justice and love for the tribe and family. Throughout most of human history, individual people were not able to aspire to individuation or finding a balanced soul. Rather, the collective society was balanced. The king was the king, the warriors were warriors, the shaman was a shaman. One person was not expected to be all these things at once. We're now in a time without true culture. God is dead, as Nietzsche would say. And whatever we try to believe in feels inauthentic. We get to choose a culture, a tribe, or a philosophy of life. And it must be reinvented to fit what is currently needed. It is the paradox that we all journey alone in life, and yet we also need other people. As I look at the Norse gods and the modern takes on reviving Viking culture, there is much to celebrate and something to love. Even a psychopath like Odin, there's something to learn. Not to follow or emulate blindly, but to explore and follow on his journey maybe to see a little bit of ourself within him. One of my questions this season, is Loki Odin's shadow, his darker side? One way to think of it is that Odin rejected love and repressed love to the shadow. It felt incompatible with power. It also seems that Odin never knew or experienced love from his father. Odin learned to be a magician, a shaman, or a sorcerer from his, uh, his uncle or his godfather figure, Mimir. Odin is seeking something that he does not even know what it looks like. He's seeking the love of a father, when what he needs is to learn to love himself. To be a little more explicit, I am suggesting a fan fiction that Odin and Loki are, or at least to some extent, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That Odin sired three monsters in giant land and had them exiled and tortured. Maybe Loki loved his children, but Odin needed to reject this threat to his power, the threat of feeling love for his children and being weak and vulnerable to that emotion. Sometimes it is easier to be the psychopath, but hopefully we have a choice and we're not disabled or invalid in that capacity to experience Eros. To love Loki, the trickster, is to love fate, which in Latin, amor fati, to love your fate. To reject your fate is to judge and hate yourself, what you have experienced and who you have become. And to judge your fate so harshly is to continue to judge the fate which had led others to be who they are. I believe it's impossible for a person to stop judging themselves while they are still continuing to judge others and vice versa. Non-judgment is a difficult practice. Perhaps it's an attitude that requires a lifetime of continual practice to maintain one's connection to the true self and to Eros.